Turn your Bibles in the book of Revelation. We're continuing in a series on the book of Revelation. And this is, if you remember, this book is not about crazy, wild things primarily. Okay, so it's got a lot of crazy, wild things in it, right? If you've ever read through the book of Revelation, you've seen lots of wild imagery. You've heard things, you've seen things that that may not be familiar to you. But what you need to get is that Revelation is all about Jesus. That's what we saw at the very beginning. When John explained the book in the very first chapter of Revelation, he says, this is the revelation of what? Of, anybody know? Shout it out. Jesus Christ, exactly right. This book is all about one thing. It's all about Jesus and all about seeing Jesus. It's all about revealing Jesus to us in the realities of life so that we can face our everyday lives. So turn your Bibles to Revelation 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 11. These are a series of messages that Jesus is specifically giving to his church, and these messages are personal. These messages are meant for real churches and real people in real situations. So hear that as a message to us today as well, because every time he speaks to one of these churches, he says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's hear what the Spirit says to us. And, you know, let's stand, actually, for the reading of God's Word. This is the only inspired, completely perfect word you'll hear this morning. And and let's, let's hear this as Jesus speaking to us. Revelation 2, 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son to come to live in our place, to die in our place, to be resurrected so that we can have the guarantee and hope of our resurrection. Jesus, thank you that that's what we celebrated already this morning in your death for us and in your life. Lord, we, we, our hope is in your body that was broken and buried and raised to life for us. Our hope is in your blood that was shed for us that we might have new life. God, I pray that you would enable each and every one of us to hear these words as spoken from your mouth to us, Lord. I pray that we would have an ear to hear. Would you enliven us by your spirit? Would you fill us with your spirit to enable us to apply this to ourselves? God, would you enable me to preach by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we live in an age that at least one fellow pastor, he has, he has called it an age of emotional fragility, and I, I agree with that. It's, it's a very emotionally fragile age that we live in, isn't it? You look around you, and, and you see that people are driven by their feelings. 
People who are driven by whether or not they feel accepted or rejected. People are motivated by wanting to have things safe and comfortable, and people are easily offended and hurt. The idea of people posing what we believe, it's, it's painful. Disagreement it becomes painful. And so college campuses, they've created these so-called safe spaces where students can be safe from anything difficult or contrary that might easily offend them. And that's really just a reflection of our broader culture, isn't it? Our whole culture is driven by that and relationships are easily broken by conflict. Marriages are easily dissolved over differences. Faith can break easily if one encounters trials and troubles and difficulties. People can give up thinking, well, if Jesus really loves me, then why is it so hard? We live in an era of fragility. Sometimes people are more afraid of being rejected than being afraid of doing what is good and right. And I don't think we're immune to these temptations either. Actually, I think this is a temptation in every age, in every generation. We think it's new, but it's not. Where people don't want to hear difficult things, where they don't like opposition, they don't like rejection. And we breathe in this culture around us, and it can affect us. So as you're, as you're sitting there today, and as you're hearing this, I want you to ask yourself, how has this culture affected me? How has the air around me affected me? How, what do I do when I face disagreement because of my faith in Jesus? What do you do when you face opposition to what you believe about Jesus? What do you do when you're rejected or you're opposed? Because you believe in Jesus, who was born to a virgin. That's, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? What, what do you do when people say that's crazy? What do you do when you tell them that you believe that not only was Jesus born to a virgin, but he is actually the Son of God who became man. He's God eternal, and he became Man, and he's both God and man. He's one with God in every way. And then you explain that Jesus actually took our place. He died. He lived for us. He died for us. And he's resurrected. He's alive now. What do you do when people reject you because of that? They oppose you. They disagree with you. How do you respond? Are you tempted to withdraw? Are you tempted to pull back? Are you tempted to kind of go inward and just keep things to yourself? What do you do if people falsely accuse you or hate you because of your faith in Jesus? Now, that might not have happened to you yet, but it will. If it hasn't, people will hate you, will falsely accuse you because you believe in Jesus. We should expect that. And actually, this has been occurring all throughout the church age. And something that we need to know, what do we do with that? How do we remain faithful? That was a question the church then faced. It's a question we face. How do we remain faithful? What do we need to know? What do we need to see to remain faithful in the face of opposition and difficulties, trials, temptations? What if your very life was threatened? Or how about this? This is worse as a parent. If your children's lives were threatened... Because your belief in Jesus. What would you do if your loved one's lives, if your friends, your family, your relatives were threatened because of your faith in Jesus? The, the church in Smyrna did not have to wonder. I think we should ask ourselves those hard questions because I think we're tempted in subtle ways to withdraw. We're tempted subtly in a thousand different ways to pull back, to blend in, to fit in because... We don't like opposition. We don't like trials. We forget that Jesus told us there will be many tribulations in this life, and we forget that the life of our Savior was a life of suffering. 
And he says, take up your cross and follow me. The church in Smyrna didn't have to wonder, what does it look like to take up our cross and follow Jesus? They faced that temptation every day. They faced those trials, those difficulties. Jesus calls it tribulations. They faced economic deprivation. They would soon face death. And in the face of all those tribulations and difficulties, they needed something strong to carry them through and something strong to sustain them if they're going to remain faithful, not give up, not blend in, not take the easy road. What they needed is just what Jesus gives them. They needed to see Jesus. That's what we need to see. We need to see Jesus, that Jesus is bigger than our circumstances. He's bigger than our situations. He's bigger than life and death. And that he's not still dead. That he's alive. He knows the troubles we face. He's at times ordained that we walk through them. And he will keep us faithful. And he'll reward us as we remain faithful. He gave them a sustaining picture of himself. And that's what we need. You ever tempted to give up? You ever tempted to give in? You ever tempted to blend in? To pull back? To withdraw? You ever tempted to say, you know, this is just too hard. What do we need? We needed the same thing the church this morning needed, a picture that would keep them through life. They needed to see who Jesus really is. We need to see who Jesus is too. That's what all these messages to the churches are. There's seven different messages. There's seven different pictures. There's snippets, and they're all repeating that first portion in Revelation 1 where Jesus gives us a vision, gives John a vision of who he is, and then he takes each portion and applies it to every church. And all of these visions, not just one of them, all of them apply to us. And, and, and avoid the danger of saying, well, I can relate to this church, but I can't relate to that church. No, Jesus says, let the, him who has an ear hear what the Spirit says to all the churches. What Jesus wants his church to see in the midst of trouble is that he's alive. I know this sounds simplistic, but do you ever, you ever live like Jesus is dead? You ever, you ever live functionally forgetting that he's actually alive? That he has power over life and death? They needed to see that he's alive and that he can trust they can trust him to give them life. The church in Smyrna needed to know they could trust Jesus. Not only is he alive, he, they can trust him to give them life. And then that main idea we're going to focus on from the text this morning, it's, it's really kind of simple. It's that Jesus calls us to be faithful. He calls us to be faithful in our troubles even unto death. Jesus calls us to be faithful in our troubles even unto death. Why? Because Jesus has been faithful, he is faithful, and he will be faithful. He calls us to be faithful unto death. Why? Because he has been faithful, he is faithful, and he, and he will be faithful. That's what we're going to see as we unpack this text today. When his church goes through troubles or tribulations, he enables us to be faithful by knowing that he's alive, by seeing his faithfulness, by looking to him for life. The church in Smyrna was desperate. They faced opposition, poverty, tribulation, slander, the, the kind of the trio that all went together, that hung together. Poverty, tribulation, and slander. What do you do when you face those things for the sake of your faith? When you lose a job or you might lose a promotion? In my history, I actually did lose a major promotion because of my faith in Jesus. And we have to ask ourselves, what will we do? Will we remain faithful? What do you do when you... Rel- when you when you face those kinds of very real trials, tribulation or slander because you believe in Jesus, they say you're a bigot. They might say that you're hateful because you believe in God's word. Not that God's word is hateful at all, actually. 
but they're slanderous accusations. The first thing that Jesus wanted the church to see in the midst of those things is that he is alive and he's overcome death. Jesus is alive and he's overcome death. That's the main idea in verse 8. He is alive and he's overcome death. Now that seems really kind of simple, right? He's, he's alive. Well, of course we know that. But, but do we functionally grasp that? Do we, do we hang on to the fact that he's alive? When you get up each morning, do you know that Jesus, he's not dead, but he's alive? He's conquered death for you. He's lived life. He died for you. And he's alive now. And that's your hope. Do you live in that hope? Thinking, I can get through anything. You know why? Because Jesus is alive, and he's my Lord, and I belong to him, and he's keeping me. That should affect how we live practically day by day. If you served a king who died, and you were a part of a kingdom that, that had gone away, what would, what would the point be? If, you're, if your king was dead, it wouldn't really matter. If your kingdom was gone... It wouldn't really matter. And so Jesus is reminding this church, hey, I'm alive and my kingdom is not only here, it forever will be. You know, that's the, the whole kind of theme is you, what Revelation is all about. Well, we've, we've kind of tried to put together and, and many people try to put together different kinds of themes and messages. Revelation is not perfect, but if you walked away with one thing in our entire series of Revelation, you should know this main idea. It's that, that Jesus is the triumphant king who he has conquered. He is... He is currently ruling, and he forever will reign. That's, that's the message of Jesus. That's who, who Jesus is revealed to be. He's alive. He's a king. He is a triumphant king. He is conquered. He is currently ruling, and he forever will reign. That's meant to affect how you live. The church there went through tribulation and poverty. People get despondent and desperate when you go through tribulation and poverty, poverty right? People do bad things when they have hard times and feel like there's no no solution. You don't have to look far. In the last couple weeks or so, we, we saw some, some violent unrest in Haiti. I don't know if you've been following the news or not, but there's been lots of violence and unrest. There's, they're very impoverished people. Now, they're not impoverished because of their faith, but people get desperate when there's poverty, tribulation. The church, they must have been tempted to give in, to blend in, to give up. In the midst of the tribulations that they're going through, they need to see Jesus. And you see, Jesus is bigger than life. He's bigger than death. He says, I am alive. I was dead, and I'm alive. I'm the creator of all. I'm the, I'm the first and the last. I'm the one who created everything. I have the first word. I got the last word. I have the first word on life. I have the last word on life. I, I was dead, and I am alive. He's what the church needed to take hold of, the truth that he's the first and the last. What does that mean? He's, he's Lord over all of history. He's claiming the same very thing that God claimed for himself in Isaiah. In Isaiah 48, 12, he says, this is God speaking to his people through the prophet. He says, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am he. Now notice this language. I am the first and I am the last. They would have heard echoes of that. I'm the first and I'm the last. Wait a minute, that's, that's something that only God can claim. And then God continued to claim in Isaiah. He says, my hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. And, then, together. and he says, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. And his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. That applies. He will perform his purpose on those who oppose the church in Smyrna as well. 
and he will be against them. That's the echoes they heard when he says, I'm the first and I'm the last. I'm over all things. I'm the Lord of all creation. Do you know that this is the Jesus who's alive? He's the first and he's the last. Jesus has the first word and he has the last word. He had the first word in creation and he's got the last word. He speaks with ultimate authority. The Roman government would have seemed to have the ultimate authority because they controlled life and death supposedly for these people in the church in Smyrna, but he wanted them to know, no, no, they don't control life and death. I do. I'm the first. I'm the last. I have the first word. I'll have the last word. The devil might try to kill you, and he might kill you physically, but I have the last word. Who has the last word in your life? Whose words do you believe and hang on to? He's already conquered death. He's only, not only Lord of history, he's Lord over life and death itself. Like the way that James Hamilton puts it, he says, applying our, to our fears the knowledge that Jesus is bigger, so applying to our fears the knowledge that Jesus is bigger than death will make us courageous. Courage is a great thing, but we must keep in mind that courage is not our ultimate goal. Our ultimate goal is to live in ways that show our confidence in Jesus. When we are courageous because we know that Jesus is bigger than death, we honor Jesus. We put ourselves in harm's way in order to protect others or save their lives because we love Jesus and know that he's in control and trust him to take care of us even if we die. We're following Jesus. He died, he came to life. He can speak with certainty about life and death. He knows and holds the lives and the death of all the church of Smyrna. Why? Because he was, he was alive, he died, and he's alive again. He holds power over life and death. He's faithful church needs to see that. What else do they need to see? They need to see that Jesus knows our troubles, our tribulations. That's what it says in verse 9. He, he knows. Jesus knows our troubles. He knows the tribulations of the church. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. This, this trio, this, this overwhelming trio. What do you do when people slander you? Anybody here ever, now you don't have to say who, by the way, please don't. <laughs> anybody here ever been slandered by anybody at all? Anybody been slandered because you're a Christian? For your faith, your beliefs, what's your temptation there? And, and he says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your slander. There's a, an old song that was sung by African Americans who were enduring the tribulation of slavery, and they later was popularized by Louis Armstrong. And, it's, and the song, it, it's, a, it's kind of a catchy tune. It says, nobody knows. Anybody else know what the next words are? All right, there you go. The troubles I've seen, nobody knows. My sorrow. <laughs> I can picture Louis Armstrong singing that, you know, nobody knows. And um, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. And, and he says, sometimes I'm up and sometimes I'm down. Sometimes I'm almost to the ground. And nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows the sorrow. That's the way it can feel at times. You can forget. You can feel like Jesus doesn't know the trouble you've seen. Like, he doesn't know your sorrows. And you need to see that he, he's saying, hey, wait a minute. I actually do. I know your troubles. I know your sorrows. You need to see that. You know, to know that reality. You need to experience the reality. Trust the reality that I actually do know. I'm not ambivalent. I know your troubles. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know the slander. I know those things. We can be tempted to think Jesus has left us alone in our tribulation, and he doesn't. He, he'll enable us to, as 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, to, to bear up under it. 
not get out of it. That's what I wanted that scripture to say when I first read it. He, he has temptations and, and he won't give us more than he's able to make us able to bear, by the way. That's not on our own, that's in him. But with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so we can be what? Bear up under it. He's telling the church there, I know your troubles. You're going to bear up under them, even if you die. I know your troubles. I know your trials. I know your tribulations. They're going through a lot of things in the city of Smyrna. Smyrna was only about 40 miles north of the Ephesus on the, on the Turkish, what we know as the Turkish coast, was called Asia back then. Uh, Smyrna was a very large city. It was a very popular city. They, they called themselves the first of Asia. I think that's probably why Jesus says, no, 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 no. <laughs> Smyrna, they think they're the first. I'm the first. The church, the, 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 the city of Smyrna said that they were the first of Asia. They were the greatest and they would always be, at one point, they had been wiped out about 700 B.C., and then about 300 years later, they were resurrected of sorts, and they were, they were built up again. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm the first, and by the way, I'm the true resurrection. You don't have to worry about these people around you. But it was a major city, and it had been kind of rebuilt by Rome, and it aligned itself with Rome before Rome was even a major power. And so it really relied on the, their, their trade with Rome and their relationships with Rome. And so they, had, they actually won the right to be one of the first places to build a temple to Emperor Tiberius. And so they built this temple and they had this practice where in Smyrna, and this is why later you will see in Revelation hints of the antithesis of what they used to do in Smyrna was they, they, would, they would every year have to renew their vows to Caesar, everybody in the city. They were obsessed with this cult of emperor worship because they wanted to maintain their financial relationship with Rome. And so they made every year, you'd have to go to the temple and you'd have to burn incense, offer a sacrifice, and then you'd have to say that Caesar is Lord. You know, in effect, writing his name on your forehead. You'd proclaim that Caesar was Lord. And then you'd get a little certificate and that certificate would be given to you, and you'd take that certificate, and you'd post it at your house, or you'd post it in your place of business, and then everybody around would know that you're acceptable, and you're okay to do business with. But if you didn't have one of those things, you better have a reason why. Now, the Jews, that had been getting kind of grandfathered in by the emperor. Um, when when they, they first conquered that whole area, they, the Jews had been grandfathered in, and they would say, okay, fine, it's fine if you don't worship the emperor, because we know that actually it's going to cause too much social unrest there, because you believe in only one God here, so... Okay, fine, you're kind of, you're exempted from that. And the Christians at first kind of enjoyed part of that exemption because they were seen as a, a Jewish sect. But now the Jews were saying, uh-uh, they are not like us. They are not part of us. And what's probably happening here says that, that they, they experienced tra- slander, tribulation, and poverty. Those things went together. And it's probably because the Jews were saying, no, the Christians are not like us. And by the way, they are insubordinate to Rome. They don't worship the Roman emperor. They are not okay. They were slandering and saying, no, these Christians are unruly. They don't submit to Rome. That's kind of the slander they would have faced in in Smyrna uniquely. And so if the people around you are seeing that you don't submit to the emperor, they're not going to do business with you, so you're not going to make any money. And by the way, you're going to draw attention to yourself. And if they say, hey, you haven't submitted. You're, you're not a Jew. Those Jews say that you haven't submitted. And they say that you have a problem with the emperor. So well, why don't you come to the temple with us and just, just give a little sacrifice and just say a few little words like, Caesar is Lord. But if you're a Christian, you can't do that. That's, that means a lot. 
Now, we saw last week that the, some people called the Nicolaitans probably were saying, no, you can do that. Just kind of cross your fingers and pretend that's okay. I don't think they actually said cross your fingers, but that's the idea, right? Just wink, wink, nod, nod. I can, I can pay homage to false gods. I can, you know, it doesn't matter. I don't believe it. But true believers couldn't do that. Smyrna, its whole economy was based on their relationship to Rome and their, the beautiful buildings that they had built and tourism and people coming and seeing them as acceptable. And the city was seen as this beautiful, magnificently arranged architecture and it had an attractive layout and it was comprehensively planned. But if you were against Rome, you essentially were against the city. And so their success was related to their relationship with the emperor. And so these Christians were likely being denied income. They probably, what the Romans do, would do for punishment is they would say, okay, fine, you don't submit, we're going to take your house, we're going to take your property, we're going to take your business. So Christians were losing business. What, do you, what would you do if you were a believer or, and you lost your business or you lost your ability for promotion, you, you lost your ability to make more income? What would you do if you faced those things? Would you be tempted to say, oh, I'm just going to go along with it? If people said, you have to sign this policy that, that agrees with things that are completely unbiblical, and we want you to sign that in order to be an employer, employee, employee here, what, what, what would you do? Would you kind of go along with it? And just like, I don't really believe that. Or would you follow Jesus? Division and hatred had grown between the Jews and the Christians, and the, and the Jews claimed that the Christians were not only a cult, but they believed in weird things like eating flesh. They were cannibals. They slandered them to Rome. You know, like this morning, we talked about the body of Jesus, the, the bread representing the body of Jesus, the blood representing the blood, of, I mean, the Jews representing the blood of Jesus. It doesn't actually become the, the body and the blood, but it represents those things. And so the Jews would slander, and they say, hey, those Christians, they're weird. They eat flesh they drink blood and there's something weird going on because they all call each other brothers and sisters and say that they're in love there's some weird things in that relationship if you know what i mean and they would be slandered and it would it was causing severe problems so jesus encourages the church he says you know i am actually the first i'm the last and by the way you need to know that they say you're poor, and you might be poor physically, but, but you're rich. You're rich. If you have Jesus, you're rich. That's what he's saying. If, because you have me, you're rich. Because you have eternal life, you're rich. Because you have an inheritance kept in heaven for you, undefiled, unfading, you're rich. You're rich. Yeah, you're poor, but you're really not. You're just poor in this world. The world might have the riches of this earth. They might take our earthly possessions, but none of those things are going to last. They're all going to go away. And yet we have riches because Jesus became poor for us so that we might be rich in him. That's what we believe. These people in Smyrna, they laid up their treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't decay. And so he's trying to get them to see these, the world's standards of evaluation are not accurate. You're poor, nah, according to the world, but no, no, you're rich. You're really rich. The riches you have are eternal. They last forever, and that's what matters most, not the fleeting treasures of this world. And so in that is a reminder, not just for that church, but for us today. What do you think of poverty? Do you think that poverty 
is necessarily always a bad thing as far as you're concerned. What do you think when you don't have money? Are, are your desires bent towards riches on this earth, or are they bent towards eternal riches? We need to be reminded of that, right? Because we're tempted. I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm tempted regularly about wanting riches. Now, I, I, thanks be to God, I don't live by that. I don't live that way. But I think it's temptation for everybody. When you, when you, when you, when you think, okay, I'd love to go and take this lavish time away, or I'd, I'd love to have a new car, or whatever it is and, that you're tempted by, or you know, I'd love to go and do these things. We can be tempted in those ways, tempted to live for those things. And it's a reminder, don't be tempted to live for the riches of the world. That's actually poverty. And what the world calls poverty, if you put your trust in Jesus, is actually riches. It's kind of what the Holy Spirit spoke through James, the brother of Jesus, and encouraged the church. James 2.5, he says, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? You might be poor in the world, but he has chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. But you are rich, heirs of the kingdom. Think about what that means, the riches that we have in Christ. You ever think about that? Does that motivate you? Are you aware of the riches you have in Christ? Or when you have financial difficulties, are you more aware and you feel like Jesus has somehow rejected you? Jesus says, no. Your poverty is not a sign of rejection at all if you have the riches that are found in me. You're rich, he says to the church there. We might not have anything in the world, but if we have Jesus, we have more than all the riches in the world. We're heirs to the kingdom. He's promised to all who love him. That gives real hope. That gives real hope to us. We, we're rich. This life will only last so long. It feels like, like forever to us, but it's just a dot on the scale of eternity. He says, no, you're rich, and the only thing that matters eternally. You need to see that truth, that reality, because you're rich in Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about name it, claim it kind of riches. This is, this is actually contrary to that. Jesus didn't come and say, I see your poverty, and you know what? If you just confess the right thing and say the right thing and believe good enough, then you can be healthy and wealthy and great in this world. No, he doesn't say that at all. He says, I see those things, and by the way, you might die. But that's okay. You're really rich, and I've got plans for you in eternity. That's, that's the answer. It's taking up your cross, following him, and in his suffering, taking up your cross, following Jesus in his poverty, believing that he has eternal riches for us. But not only does he say that, he says that he's alive, he knows our troubles, he knows the slander of those who say they were Jews and are not, but are synagogue of Satan. What he means there is the Jews were slandering, like I said, the Christians there, and they were against Jesus, they were against his church, and so they revealed they really weren't God's people they said they belonged to the synagogue of God and that, that you have to belong to this synagogue of God in order to really truly follow God. And he's saying that's not true at all. They actually are not a synagogue of me. They're a synagogue of Satan because they oppose me. So don't be afraid of what they say about you. It doesn't matter if they slander you. Why do you want to fit in with them? Because they're a synagogue of Satan. When you're tempted to fit in with the world, remember that they're an assembly of Satan. And I don't mean that condescendingly. We all once were, okay? But why would, we, why would we want to go back 
to being a part of the assembly of Satan, to being a part of his dominion, his kingdom. We need to see. That's what Revelation shows us. It pulls back the curtain, shows us just how ugly it really is to want to be part of the world. It's the synagogue of Satan. It's the people who oppose Jesus are actually with, assembling, gathering together to worship Satan, whether they know that or not. And that's what he's saying here. I want you to see what's reality. Jesus is faithful in all of our troubles. You know, if I am driving in a car with somebody that I know well and I trust them, I've seen how they drive, and they're driving, and I'm in the passenger seat, I, I, I don't think much about it. You know, and so if they're stop and go traffic, people slam their brakes on, they're having to change lanes, or they're having to speed up and go fast to get around people, I don't really think much about it. If, if I know them, if I trust them, you know, if I don't though, or if it's maybe one of my kids, whew, I'm tempted, whoo, um, they're getting better, by the way. They're both, uh, my two older ones are learning to drive, and I've relaxed a little more with Noah, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there later with Abby. She's a good driver, actually. It's not her, it's me. But you ever get afraid when, like, you're, you're having a ride with somebody that you're not totally confident in them? And now, now imagine that somebody was a little nutty, a little kind of crazy and wild-eyed. You ever get in a cab when you're like, oh my gosh, this was a mistake? <laughs> I got in an Uber once and I thought, oh my goodness, I, how can I get out? Um, this guy is nuts. You know, if a madman's at the wheel, I, I start to fear. But what Jesus is saying is, no, I'm in control. I, I'm the first, I'm the last. I know about all these things. What, is, what does he mean? What, what, is that, what is that assurance that give us? He's aware of your troubles and he's with you through them. He might not get you out of them. He probably won't in many times. Sometimes he's going to walk you right through them. Sometimes he does deliver us from them. But he says, I know them and we can trust him in the midst of those things. Even when it gets a little crazy, you can trust him. He's in control. So he says, don't fear your troubles. Don't fear. Don't be afraid of. Don't fear the tribulations that are coming. Don't fear the problems that are coming. Don't fear those things. Why? Because see me. See that I'm the first. See that I'm the last. See that I'm, I was dead and I'm alive. And, and see who I am. See that I know your troubles. I know all things first to last. I'm sovereign is what he's saying. And then in response to that, knowing that, seeing him, he calls us then to be faithful as we see his faithfulness. He calls us to be faithful even unto death, he says. Jesus calls them, he says, be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. That's what it says in the first part of verse 10. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. You ever, you ever fear what you're about to suffer? Anybody ever fear what you're about to suffer? Anybody think, oh my gosh, there's no way I can do this. You, you have a bill that comes in, you're not able to make your bills, you're fearing, what am I going to do? Maybe you're fearing your health. Maybe you have health issues, health problems, and you're, you know that there's not any medical solution to those problems. Maybe you go to school and you face rejection and mocking every day because of your faith in Jesus. Maybe you face family members who reject you because of Jesus. Or maybe at work you're getting rejected or mocked or ridiculed. Jesus says, I know those troubles. I, I'm, 
I'm in control. Don't fear what you're about to suffer. Why? Because see that Jesus is faithful. He's the first. He's the last. He was dead, but he's alive. He knows what you're going through. One commentator said a literal translation might be an emphatic, don't be afraid of anybody because you see who Jesus is. Don't fear. Jesus says, I, I know what's about to happen. Now, now, to some degree, you think, well, why did he do that and why didn't he just take them out of it? He wanted them to know what was going to happen so that they wouldn't be surprised by suffering and they wouldn't think he was unaware and they wouldn't think he didn't care. Sometimes, not about you, but sometimes I'm surprised by suffering. Sometimes I'm surprised by rejection. I don't like it. I don't like rejection. I don't like mocking. I don't like slander. I don't like it when things are hard. Sometimes I'm surprised by it. Sometimes I get upset, worried. I, I fear what might happen. And he says, don't fear. Know that I know what's exactly what's going to happen to you. And I actually, um, I, I, I've limited it. That's what he's telling them. He says, the, the devil is about to. He tells them exactly what's going to happen. Now, I don't know about you. I don't, I, sometimes I don't want to know my future. Yeah. You know, I used to think that I wanted to know my future. I don't know so much now, right? Imagine if you were at a church in Smyrna and you got this letter, right? And Jesus is saying, hey, by the way, I'm telling you future. You're like, oh, stink. Because what does he say? It's not good news. It's kind of like when Jesus predicted all of our future and says, behold, in this world, you will have many tribulations. But take heart, I've overcome the world. I've already done it. Here he says, behold, look, look in your Bibles in verse 10. He says, behold, the devil is about to. Not yet. He hadn't done it yet. They didn't know that. They might not have known. He says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested, and for 10 days you'll have tribulation. What he's telling them is a bunch of things. I'm in control. I know what's going to happen. I'm sovereign over the future. And then I'm, I'm limiting it. I'm limiting tribulation. And what's really behind this persecution, this tribulation, these sufferings, it's really the devil. Your, your battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not those evil Jews. It's not the evil Romans. Your battle's not against flesh and blood. This is actually the devil doing this. He's behind these troubles, these imprisonments, that you might be tested, that your faith might be tested is what's referring to. That the testing of your faith might produce perseverance. Perseverance might produce hope and hope that does not disappoint that's the implication there. The devil is going to throw them in prison. You know, some have said, well, maybe that's the, this 10 days here. They faced 10 days of battle in the arena before we being put to death because they did face the arena in Smyrna shortly after this. I'm not sure if that's what it means because I, I think this, whenever you look at numbers in Revelation, unless they're explained, you know, when, when numbers aren't explained in Revelation, they're generally figurative. They're generally meant to be used figuratively. So when he's talking about 10 days of tribulation, I think that's in comparison to other times and days and months in the book of Revelation. And I think what it's showing is it's going to be a full period of tribulation. You really are going to suffer, but I'm going to limit it. I'm going to limit your suffering. I'm in charge. You're going to suffer. You're going to be thrown in prison, and you're going to be tested. You're going to have tribulation but I'm going to limit it. I'm in control. And that, that word for tribulation, it's not one that we like. It means being pressed together. It's pressure. 
It's the idea of being crushed by a burden. And he says, you know, that's going to happen. But it's coming. Hang in there. I'm limiting it. You can trust me because the outcome, it's, it's like when a lump of coal is in the earth in the midst of the fires, the pressure, the intense pressure beneath the earth's crust. The, the only thing that turns coal into a diamond is intense pressure and heat. And that's kind of what he's saying here. There's going to be intense pressure. There's going to be intense heat. But it's going to produce something. You're going to receive this, this crown of life. You know, we like that message that we'll be overcomers. We don't like the message of Jesus when he spoke through Paul in Romans. <laughs> you know, when, when, Jesus, when, when, when Paul talked about being more than conquerors, we like that part, right? And Jesus says, well, you know, if you conquer, the one who conquers... And you think, all right, yes, we're more than conquerors. And you have all these victorious Christian marching songs. You ever, you ever hear those things? Like nothing's going to happen to us now because we've got Jesus. We're, we're going to overcome everything. We're going to be rich. We're going to be strong. We're, nothing bad's ever going to occur. We're never going to be sick. All these other nonsense claims. But here's, here's the reality of what he says in Romans eight thirty five. He says, what will separate us? What does, it, what does it look like to be overcomers? What will separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation? Or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. Those are things I don't like, by the way. And if you like any of those things, you've got issues, all right? <laughs> what will separate us? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. No, it says that is written. Oh, here's, here's what it looks like the conqueror. For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he says, no, that's not reality. In, in all these things, in your tribulations, in your poverty, in your slander, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What? Through him who loved us. In them, not, not he gets us out of them, but in them, in the midst of those things, we are conquerors through him, through him who loved us. We will conquer if we remain faithful. Keep faith in Jesus. We conquer by that, in those things. He calls us to follow his faithful example. Isn't that the whole Christian life anyway? You know, the victorious Christian life is this. It's, you want to follow me? Come, take up your cross. Follow me. Okay, die to yourself. Die to your desires. And then follow me on this path of suffering that ends in death. But oh, it ends in eternal life, resurrection life, because I die, but I'm alive. And that's where you're going to. And so he, he will be faithful. It's the last thing we see in the second part of verse, verse 10 and in verse 11. He will be faithful. Jesus will be faithful to give us the crown of life. That's good news. That's what we need to see. We need to see that he knows, that he's aware. He's the first and the last. He knows our troubles, and he is going to be faithful to give us the crown of life. He says, be faithful to death, and I will give you the crown of life. And what he's talking about there in the tribulations, their imprisonment, those times of tribulation, right after that he says, be faithful to death. Why does he say that? Because in Roman times, imprisonment was typically not, in the first century here, in, in the first 90 years or so of the first century, Romans did not typically use imprisonment as punishment. It's kind of a crazy thing. They punished you by exile. They punished you by taking money from you, by banishing you, all kinds of punishments they had, by whipping you. They had all kinds of punishments. But prison was normally if you were awaiting sentencing or if you were awaiting the death penalty. That was normal, that the normal use of prison, imprisonment was you're either waiting sentence, that's what Paul did for many years, right? 
or you're awaiting the death penalty. And so there's the implication here. He says, you know what? You're going to have trials. You're going to be imprisoned. Be faithful to death. Be faithful to death. That's a daunting command, isn't it? How do we get through that? What do you do? What would you do if you face death, if your family faced death, if your children, if your loved ones faced death? See Jesus. He's the first. He's the last. He's overcome death. And he's going to give us the crown of life. That's how you are sustained through difficulty and trials and tribulations and troubles. He wants the church to know that Satan could not ultimately destroy the church because even if they're killed, he's the only one who has power of life and death, and he's going to raise up all who are killed to eternal life. James Hamilton puts it this way. He says, the command to be faithful unto death, a command, it, it proclaims that it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than it is to go on living. The command to be faithful unto death proclaims it's more important to be faithful to Jesus than it is to go on living. What's more important to you? Is it more important to go on living? It's more important to be rich? More important as people speak well of you? More important that things go easy for you? Or is it more important to be faithful unto death? That's what this calls us to. It challenges us. And when I see the faithfulness of Jesus, I'm convicted of all the areas I'm unfaithful. I mean, I struggled with this text. Not because the message wasn't clear, but because it was clear. It became clear. And I thought, oh my goodness, Jesus is calling me to faithfulness. But when I see his faithfulness, his ultimate faithfulness all throughout, his faithfulness to love us, to pursue us despite our sin, his faithfulness to live for us, to endure each and every kind of temptation, to resist all temptation, his faithfulness even to the point of death, his faithfulness when he's his best friend, he looks across the courtyard and his best friend says, I don't even know the man. And he was faithful and he remains faithful and then exposes my unfaithfulness. And so what do we do when we see our unfaithfulness? We look up and we see Jesus. He's faithful. Our hope is not in our ability to be faithful to obey this command. Our hope is in our ability to trust in his faithfulness, that Jesus will enable me to be faithful. And when I'm unfaithful, I come back to him again. I look up and see him there again. <laughs> the only way for us to be faithful in death is to see that living for Jesus, even if it means we might die for him, is worth it. That's what he's saying. How are you faithful to death? Oh, by seeing that even if you die, it's worth it. Is it worth it if you die for Jesus to you? Is that worth it? If you lose your family, if, if you lost your spouse, if you lost your children, if you lost what was most dear to you, your job, everything else, would that be worth it if you knew that you were kept in Jesus? I don't think these are hypothetical things. Later on, John sees a picture of these countless people. They're standing around in white robes in front of the throne, Revelation 7. We'll see that in a lot of weeks from now. Um, in Revelation 7, 9, it says, after, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And then one of the elders around the throne, he comes up to John, and he says, I got a question for you. And... and and so he says, in, in verse 13 of Revelation 7, he says, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John's like, uh, my Lord, you know. Like, I don't have any clue, but you, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones who've come out of what? The great tribulation. Same word here in this text, by the way. 
These are words who come out of the ones who come out of the great tribulation, and they have washed their robes and made them white in the in the blood of the Lamb. That's what we professed this morning. That we washed our filthy rags, and now we wear righteous robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. That's our hope. That's our hope. Even though we don't see it, the reality is if we endure, we're faithful unto death, we're going to come out of this tribulation, we're going to wear right robes, wash in the blood of the Lamb, like James wrote before, we will be blessed. In James 1.12, he says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive, same language here, the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, Paul went on in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, every athlete, athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, and they would have been very familiar with that in Smyrna because they hosted, at times, different Olympic games there. They would have received this wreath, and he says, but we're going to receive an imperishable one. A crown of life is what he's referring to, an everlasting crown. And, and in ancient times, and when the emperor would come to Smyrna, they would actually, the people would present this wreath to the emperor in kind of homage to him, and they would bestow him with this crown of sorts. But Jesus, he's not like earthly kings. He's saying, I'm not like that. You don't give me a crown. I give you the crown, not because you've earned it, but because I have earned it. And so when you die, you're going to receive this crown of life. Hear what the Spirit says in the churches. One who conquers will not be hurt by the second death, he says in verse 11. That's what victorious Christian life looks like now. Not those who are pursuing their best life in this world, but those who are remaining faithful through the worst of life. Knowing the best is yet to come. Those are the ones who are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. Whatever you're experiencing, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Don't live for this life now. That's what we can take away from this. I love in Revelation 21, 17. I don't know if I have that one for you or not. I think I might have skipped a couple of scriptures. So he it says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. You have riches, the crown of life. You won't experience a second death, the, the burning and the lake of fire if you've placed your faith in Jesus. Death is coming. Death is inevitable for each and every one of us here. Do you know all of us will die? Unless Jesus comes back before then, all of us are going to die. How does it matter how we die as long as we're trusting in Him? We're going to die. If you're trusting in Him without trials, troubles, if you're put to death, you're trusting in Him, the outcome is going to be the same. As we remain faithful in this life, we can be sure we're going to inherit eternal life and never die. It doesn't matter if we die in our old age or die standing up for Jesus. The end's the same. We shouldn't fear it. The New Testament never promises freedom from suffering in this life. Actually, it promises the reverse. Without the cross, though, there is no crown. But because he has won the crown for us, we'll receive it. You know, later, about 70 years or so, somewhere around that, there was a guy named Polycarp. He was a bishop in Smyrna. He was the head of the church. He was actually a disciple of John, the one who's writing this letter to us or recording this letter from Jesus to us. The apostle John, he, he discipled Polycarp. And then Polycarp was put to death in Smyrna about 70 years after this letter or so. He was put to death. And there was so much animosity and hatred from the Jews that it was a Sabbath day, but they collected firewood on the Sabbath because they hated him so much and they wanted to see him burned alive. 
And he was burned alive. And, and as he went to his execution, they asked him to recant again. And he said, how can I then blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment prepared for the wicked. I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour. So that in the company of martyrs, I might share the cup of Christ. It's another man, 1,800 years later, or 1,700 and some years later, a guy named Charles Simeon. He became a pastor in a church, and his church, by and large, hated him for about 40 years, 31 years, actually. Um, he, they, they didn't like him so much that they, they blocked off the pews. They had, they had gates to the pews. I don't understand that, but they had gates on the pews, and so they locked the pew gates so people couldn't get in them. And so he brought his own chairs, and they, they threw them out. And, and, and so um, they didn't like him because he wanted to preach the Bible, what the Bible said, and, and not say things that people loved. And so he was a pastor for about 49 years, and 31 of those 49 years he endured persecution, and he outlasted all kinds of prejudice against him. And somebody at age 71, they, they asked him, why did you do it? How did you endure? And, and, and I love his response. He says, my dear brother, we must not mind a little suffering for God. 31 years, man. We must not mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. When I'm getting through a hedge... If my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the pricking of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let's follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Jesus is still alive. He's still speaking. He has the first word. He has the last word. He calls us to be faithful in death. We can trust him to be faithful to give us the crown of life. I, I love the part of the spiritual song that I did not share with you, how it really ends, it's nobody knows my sorrows but Jesus. Nobody knows my sorrows but Jesus. And it goes on to say, although you see me going long so, oh yes, Lord, I have my trials here below. Oh yes, Lord, if you get there before I do, oh yes, Lord, tell all my friends I'm coming to heaven. Oh yes, Lord. Jesus calls us to be faithful in our troubles to death because he's been faithful, he is faithful, he'll be faithful to give us the crown of life. Amen? Well, let's have the band go ahead and come up and we'll sing. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have the first word and the last word. That you did die but for us, but you are alive for us. That you've conquered death, you hold the keys, you know our troubles. You're going to give us the crown of life. May we look up and see you. May we not give in. May we not blend in. May we not be tempted to give up. May we endure and be faithful as we look and see you for who you really are. And God, would you give us this joy of knowing that there now lies in heaven the crown that has been laid up for us and a treasure where moth and rust cannot decay. Give us joy in the inheritance that we have in you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.